You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations from authors, scholars and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes and whatever platform you might be listening from. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. And we are uh, very fortunate today to have with us uh, Dan Raviv. About, talk about the uh, new book he's co-authored with Yossi Melman called Spies Against Armageddon, Inside Israel's Secret Wars. And how many days has the book been out now? Today's the second day. Today's the second day of the launch, so you're, you're in on a scoop. Uh, Dan Raviv is a national correspondent for CBS News and also a host of the CBS News Weekend Roundup, a radio magazine program which is broadcast across the country. Uh, he's been a national correspondent since 1997. Before that, he did uh, quite a number of years uh, overseas and uh, doing uh, international reporting. He was based in Tel Aviv in the late uh, 1970s, where he covered the peace talks between Egypt and Israel. He then, in 1980, went and spent uh, 12 years in London, where he covered the Falklands War uh, all the way up to the fall of the Berlin Wall and other major events, during which time he interviewed Margaret Thatcher, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Yasser Arafat, I'd love to hear about that sometime. Uh, and, and then he served for a while in Miami, a, a domestic base, but from which he went on foreign assignments in uh, places like Cuba and Peru. Back in 1990, Dan teamed up with Yossi Melman and wrote Every Spy a Prince, the complete history of the Israeli intelligence community, which uh, was a, a remarkable book, uh, particularly for its time, and, and quite deservedly became a bestseller. He also, uh, they also together co-authored a book called Friends Indeed, Inside the U.S.-Israel Alliance. Every Spy of Prince was, as I say, a remarkable achievement, and today he's here to talk about the follow-on, which comes 22 years later, Spies Against Armageddon. Uh, more sources were available to them than had been available 20-some years ago. More people were willing to talk. I imagine he'll at least allude to that. Uh, now, there are a lot of people who know all about Israeli intelligence, but they're typically not free to talk, and there are far too many people who are free to talk and who do so at great length but who know precisely nothing or sometimes less than nothing about Israeli intelligence. None of their prattle more stupid and, to my mind, offensive than, for instance, the story that the Mossad's greatest operation was the 9-11 attack. Uh, Dan Raviv and Yossi Melman, however, are those rare creatures who both know and are at liberty to discuss what they know. 
Now, the official motto of the Mossad is from Proverbs 11:14, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. And this is right in tune in that translation with the general thrust, I think, of most Western intelligence services, that intelligence exists to inform policy, to enable better decision-making in a competitive environment, and Lord knows Israel lives in a competitive environment. And indeed, Israel's intelligence community uh, uh, contains some very well-respected analysts and analytic uh, capabilities. Of course, they've not been without their failures, notably in 1973. But Dan points out also in the introduction of the book that the word counsel uh, in that verse from Proverbs can also be translated as deception, trickery, or stratagem, but in any case is aimed at confounding the intentions of the opponents. And here the Mossad and Israel are operating within a different tradition of intelligence, one that sees intelligence as being a form of national power, like military power, like economic power. And it's in this context that we think about and look at Israel's covert actions, notably uh, most recently uh, against Iran, and I know you've got some, some good scoops on that. So I'd encourage you to think about these two philosophies of intelligence as you consider Israel and its intelligence community. There's much to be learned about Israeli intelligence, and I can think of no better place to start than this book. So let's really jump into it, ladies and gentlemen, Dan Raviv. Hello, everybody. I loved Mark's speech. In a nutshell, he got it. And that's what I love, of course. I'm really interested in this topic. I'm a journalist who normally on CBS has to do all sorts of topics, uh, anything from health reports to what President Obama and Congress are doing. But I've had this abiding love and passion for the Middle East story. And a lot of people in my industry, by the way, say that the Middle East is the, is the career that never stops. Right. There's always something going on. Peace has not been achieved. And as much as we hope for peace and hope that it would be a stable region and would not have all sorts of lethal dangers that can even reach out and touch us and hurt us here in the United States, it doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. Just the nature of the struggle changes. So you might wonder about the leading Israeli intelligence community, the leading intelligence community in that region. Uh, who's David? Who's Goliath? A lot of people wonder about that. I'm going to talk to you about two broad topics and then also open the floor to questions because I'd like to know what's on your mind and be responsive to you. The two topics are what's special about Israeli intelligence? Why did you come for, to hear a talk today about the Mossad, the foreign operations arm of Israeli intelligence? Uh, the community includes some other agencies too. We'll get into that. Why did you come, whereas I think the crowd would be smaller for a talk about the Serbian intelligence, the Bulgarian intelligence, all of which have interesting stories, by the way. But there's something about the Mossad mystique. There's something about Israel. Uh, it's there in that place of conflict, but it's also the place of the Bible, of the Holy Land, of the stories that we all somehow can relate to. And so we're interested in And we also know that for a tiny country, Israel has accomplished unusual and big things. The second part of my talk will be about how do you write a book about intelligence? Sometimes people actually ask me. I don't just mean, who are your sources? Who do you talk to? How do you do it? I mean, literally, especially young journalists say, I want to write a book, <laughs> a book about intelligence. How do you do that? How do you start? So we'll talk about, about that as well. And as I say, leave time for questions. I mentioned who's David and who's Goliath. I think it's sort of an appropriate way for that part of the world to talk about big and little. And that's an important theme here because Israel is small. You can't emphasize it enough. Israel's population right now is 6 million. The United States is about 60 times the size when it comes to population. 
When it comes to physical size, even more so, Israel's tiny, much smaller than the United States. So Israel doesn't have strategic depth, doesn't have the ability for its army to pull back if there is a war, pull back and then pounce forward. Uh, Israel from the beginning felt itself to be very, very thin. What was the beginning? 1948. David Ben-Gurion, the first Israeli prime minister, uh, he declared independence of, in May of 1948, very well aware of two things, that his country is among the smallest on earth and that the neighboring countries are about to invade. The neighboring countries don't want there to be a Jewish state of Israel. The British were leaving. The British had held Palestine. The plan approved by the UN had been for Israeli and Arab, Jewish, for a Jewish state and an Arab state. Uh, they, I guess, would have been called Israel and Palestine. It didn't work out that way. Most people say that the uh, Arabs rejected the deal. The Arab countries invaded. There never was a state of Palestine that was established. Many years later, we, we say how unfair that is, of course, but back then there, there wasn't really an awareness of it. Again, it's the it's the pace of events, and the events in 1948 and 49 were a war. From the Israeli point of view, that's the war of independence. Milchemet ha'atzma'ut, yes, I'm fluent in Hebrew as well, which will inform the second part of my talk. How do you write a book about intelligence? Actually get into the culture if you can. So this, in, this war of independence was a rough one. The Jewish state of Israel was tiny. It could have lost. It could have been wiped out. In fact, uh, many, many um, Western diplomats and strategists who were working at the time expected the Jews to lose, expected Israel would be wiped out. One reason that Harry Truman, the U.S. president, was advised by some of his counselors here in Washington not to recognize the new Jewish state of Israel was Let's see how this war turns out. There may not be a Jewish state of Israel within a couple of months. But the Israelis won. All right, that's guts and valor, no question. Uh, arms that came from places like Czechoslovakia and secretly from the United States and from Latin America. And a lot of that was intelligence work and covert work by the pre-Israel underground, by the famous Haganah, which was, before Israel was established, was in effect the, 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 the Jews' secret army, the Haganah, various wings of it. They also knew that a big war was coming, and so they smuggled in weapons. So the Israelis had this sense from day one that they had to do things in innovative ways and in secret ways. I'm suggesting to you that when a country is that small, that beleaguered, and feels that it has its back against the wall, it feels that it can't do things in the normal, acceptable way. It can't follow the parliamentary rules of procedure, but instead feels that it has to do things off the books that will never be acknowledged. So that includes smuggling weapons and smuggling people. Before Israel was established in May of 1948, Israel, or the Israelis, the future Israelis, saw themselves as a homeland for the Jews from all around the world. And the most immediate situation was the Holocaust, that Nazi Germany had murdered six million Jews, millions of other people too died in World War II, that six million Jews had been killed mainly in concentration camps, and Jewish leaders said that's never going to happen again. The phrase eventually became never again, and Israel represented a homeland. Now, again, the, even before independence, these future Israelis, the Jewish leaders like Ben-Gurion, were aware that they can and must offer shelter to the Jews who survived World War II in Europe. 
but even encourage them to come. Now, again, here we have kind of mixed motives. Rescue them, save them, provide a home. But also Israel, the future Israel, is going to be so tiny with so few people, we need more people. We need more workers, we need more soldiers, we need more farmers. And so if you're going to build up a country, not just with the motto or the notion that you're offering a homeland to Jews, the only way to survive is to actually bring in Jews and have a lot of people. Therefore, I'm not going to make this a reading per se, but I will tell you that early in our book, we talk about a meeting in 1949, which was during one of the breaks in the War of Independence. You may not know uh, that when Israel was fighting against the Egyptians and the Transjordanians and the Iraqis and the Syrians, the Arabs had invaded this new state of Israel. From time to time, a ceasefire would be arranged. Yeah, even when there are no diplomatic relations, you can arrange a ceasefire, whether it's the Red Cross, uh, the UN, international bodies. So sometimes the war would stop. Now, it was an interesting time. For the new state of Israel, these breaks in the war would allow politicians and leaders, Prime Minister Ben-Gurion and his ministers and military officers, to think about how to organize themselves on a tactical basis, how to organize themselves for the next stage of war, but also how to organize the country. They barely had had a chance to breathe and even think about it. So early in the book, on page 25, I say that they quite intentionally, after thinking about it, in a meeting in February of 1949, decided that the intelligence community, first, would have to be world class. They were well aware that Russia, the Soviet Union, had a world-class and even frightening intelligence apparatus. Uh, pretty much we know it as the KGB, but lots of organizations. Uh, for most of those years, that had been Stalin's secret police, which was known to have done horrible things. And so Ben-Gurion did not intend to do horrible things or to arrest people or banish them or kill minorities or anything. That wasn't his intention. But I have to say that the early Israelis admired the Soviet system of of making decisions, you know, being decisive, having strong government bodies. There was a lot of uh, leaning toward that. We need a strong government. This country could be wiped out unless we have a government that's well-organized and works. Interesting. They kind of admired the Soviets. Uh, don't forget that Ben-Gurion and others, most of the leaders of early Israel, were socialists. And so they kind of had an abiding affection for a socialist government. They said with their kibbutz farms and a sense of fairness and justice, they were not going to be Stalin's Soviet Union, but Israel was going to be strong with a strong government. They also admired democracy, and they admired the United States. And Harry Truman did recognize Israel. The United States was first, just beating the Soviets for the honor of recognizing Israel. So Israel was kind of always pulled early on in two directions admiring the Soviets and socialism, but wanting to be part of the free world. Uh, but the free world was a little suspicious of Israel. Would it survive? And maybe it was socialist. Uh, so again, pulled in two directions. The structure of the intelligence community would suggest a direction that Israel would choose. So not surprisingly, the first body, the first agency that Ben-Gurion decided to set up would be military intelligence. It came to have the name Amman which is short for Agaf Hamodi'in, the intelligence wing of the Israeli army, of the Israel Defense Forces. So Amman is now the largest of the intelligence agencies. 
you think of the Mossad, the Mossad made headlines, the Mossad does most of the foreign operations, but Amman military intelligence is larger. Sometimes even here in the United States we lose sight, we don't think about military intelligence, how important it is, but you can imagine the Pentagon has the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and other bodies, and the Air Force has its own intelligence, and the Navy has its seals for operations, etc. What I'm trying to remind you is whether it's the U.S. or other countries, intelligence often is military and linked with the military, but most countries will also have non-military agencies, whether that's for balance or to allow often the prime minister or the president of a country to have an organization that he can directly order to do things. That's one of the reasons to have a non-military agency. Well, in the Israeli context, they knew they needed excellent military intelligence. February 1949, they were in the middle of a war. Of course they felt that way. The second body they set up was a domestic secret service. Now here's where, if you're not careful, you will fall into the Soviet model and start having secret prisons and arresting dissidents, etc. Again, Ben-Gurion was determined not to do that. But a domestic secret service um, is like the FBI. And it came to have the name Shin Bet, which is short for Cherote Hapitachon, which is the security services. Most people call it Shin Bet. Still exists. Over the years, it changed. Israel has become more modern, and uh, many people say more democratic, more open. It's okay to even talk about intelligence. It's fine for Yossi Melman, an Israeli, my co-author, to take part in the writing of books like this, and he covers intelligence all the time for Israeli newspapers and websites. But you can imagine in 1949, these were very secret, sensitive, and hush-hush topics. In 1949, no one was even reporting on this meeting in which these agencies were set up. Of course, looking back in history, we're able to find out what was done. Uh, the idea overall with the Shin Bet, the Domestic Security Service, was to look for enemy spies. You're involved in a war, there's a, quite a large possibility that your immediate enemy, the Arab countries, will be trying to penetrate Israel. It's only natural. It's one thing that takes place in war, and this building, the International Spy Museum, is filled with examples of not only the Cold War Soviet bloc against the United States and its friends, but also the use of intelligence during war code-breaking, etc. All of that needed to be done, some of it by military intelligence, but especially for counterintelligence, keeping an eye out for where your enemy might be sending in spies. In this case, it would be Arab countries sending someone in, posing as an Israeli Jew, pretending to be an Israeli, trying to infiltrate the Israeli army, the Israeli political system, etc. Uh, in fact, it turned out over the years not many attempts by the Arab countries to do it. A few by Egypt. Egypt was more sophisticated than the others in trying this. The Egyptian intelligence did send in a few people, a few, and we write about them in the book, who posed as Israelis. It was the Soviet Union that did it again and again and again and again. Now, there was opportunity. What was going on is that a lot of Jews were moving to Israel from those communist countries, which were just beginning then. Right, this was just after World War II. Communism was taking hold in more countries in, uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, but the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union and had been communist for years with a habit of sending spies wherever to extend the Russian reach, to extend the reach of international communism. And so Ben-Gurion was right to be on the lookout. It turned out that over the years to come, uh, into the 50s, well into the 50s, uh, Israeli counterintelligence in the form of Shin Bet, that domestic agency was catching Soviet spies 
a lot, very often, very frequently. That turned out to be the main threat when it comes to catching spies within Israel. So we've had the military intelligence, Amman, the domestic security service, Shin Bet, and then they set up a foreign intelligence service. Now that is what uh, is often called in uh, official Israeli bureaucratic language, chutzpah. <laughs> not really, not really an official word, of course, but a Jewish word meaning you have a lot of nerve. My gosh, you're really small, and you have the chutzpah to say you should have a foreign intelligence service that will go to foreign countries and accomplish things for you. But Ben-Gurion and his intelligence chiefs early on were clever enough to know that especially if you're determined to have a modern country, you're determined not to be stuck in the morass of the Middle East, Africa, Third World, whatever the phrase was back then. Israel was not going to be one of those poor countries that would just slowly try to develop. It was working in hyperspeed. Maybe it had no choice because the Arabs were attacking and there was war from day one. But there was also the attitude. It was ambitious. The Holocaust had occurred because Jews, uh, this was the image, had not done enough to protect themselves, had gone along too willingly when the Nazis were rounding rounding them up around Europe. Sure, there were brave partisan fighters, Warsaw, Ghetto, elsewhere, sure, but the general image, certainly among Israelis or Palestinian Jews, was that Jews had not done enough, hadn't organized themselves, didn't have an answer, and so everything had to be done, and quickly, to erase the bitterness of what had just happened, to turn around Jewish history, to return to where King David had been, and there was much talk back then of that kind of courage of biblical kings and, and, and actually having a modern state in the place where ancient Jews had walked and lived and created a great part of civilization. Now, those are all big words, but I'm telling you that Israeli strategic planners were actually caught up in so much of this emotion and sense of history, really well aware of the uniqueness of what they were building. The Jewish state of Israel was not going to be your normal country. And again, that's why you're here today, too. It's not your normal average country, and that was the decision from early on. But that included the chutzpah, the nerve, of having a foreign intelligence service that could go to any country on earth and do operations. Now, at that time, it included uh, arranging ways of getting weapons. Israel felt it was going to be at war for maybe a long time, and so that was one mission. Uh, and you never knew what would come up. Well, before long, this agency got a name, Hamosad, the Mossad. The Institute, that's what that Hebrew word means. The, the long name is that it's the Institute for uh, Special Operations. Oh, I don't have it in front of me, so I actually apologize. It's a, it's a whole bunch of Hebrew words, and I'll, I'll, I'll get back to it in a second. Uh, the Institute for Special Operations, Special Tasks, uh, a, a name, of course, that they didn't publicize anyway. They didn't put it in the paper. The Mossad still doesn't have a spokesman, though as of a few years ago, it has a website. We were shocked. Yossi Melman and I have worked on this for years, as Mark pointed out. We wrote a book in 1990 called Every Spy a Prince when none of these agencies had addresses, phone numbers, or websites, and yet, really, mossad.gov.il. And among other things, somewhat similar to the CIA website, it includes a recruiting page. Do you want to work for the Mossad? <laughs> They're actually inviting you to volunteer yourself. Everything's done online these days, social networking. 
uh, a website. Wow, what a step forward. But back then, it was very, very secret. The Mossad was going to be spooky. No one knew. But they did know that a lot of the immigrants who had come to Israel had some experience, often during World War II, maybe helping out with British intelligence or being a partisan fighter uh, behind Nazi lines. These were people who had a sense for how to lead a double life, false identities, false documents, etc. And from early on, the Israelis found they're good at it. They were able to find excellent forgers. Did you know, by the way, that forgers are often artists? Well, many Jewish artists often found that they could have the talent, if assigned to do it, to look at foreign passports and look at laissez-passer papers, etc., and forge them beautifully. Nice job. Now, this was very important for the task of another agency that was set up, the fourth. So, again, military intelligence, Amman. Shin Bet for domestic security, kind of like the FBI the Mossad for foreign operations, and the fourth was a clandestine in, uh, immigration service. Immigration? Believe me, what other country would do that? What other country would have a special agency? Do the British have an agency, MI7, to bring in all English-speaking peoples into the British Isles? Of course not. Uh, did America have to have a special agency to encourage immigration? Not last time I checked. But Israel wanted immigration, again, the part of the raison d'etre of the country, and so it even merited having a secret agency for that purpose. Now, that's in part because many countries did not let their Jews leave. The Soviet Union, in particular, would not let its citizens leave willy-nilly, certainly not with money, not with property. Having an exit visa or an exit passport was a highly prized thing in communist countries, You'd want to even forge them sometimes. And so early on, that agency was known as Hamosadla Aliyabet, the Institute for Alternative Aliyah. Aliyabet means Aliyah B, not Aliyah A. Aliyah is a Hebrew word, literally means going up, but it has become the accepted word for Israelis, for Jews who are aware of this, for moving to Israel. Aliyah is going up to the promised land, going up to the holy land in Israel. So Aliyah means moving to Israel. They had, an inst they had an institute for that, an agency. The Mossad for Aliyah B meant sort of a wink B, you know, we're not talking about it. It's not our main way of organizing Aliyah, where of course we'll get French Jews and American Jews to move to Israel because it's exciting and they want to work on a kibbutz. We need you. Come on over. That's great. That's open. This is the covert secret immigration. They got really busy, especially in communist countries, but then early on realized that they were also needed in Arab countries and in Muslim countries as well, like Iran. People, Jews, who wanted to leave felt they needed to leave, and in fact, after Israel was established and managed to survive that war of independence, starting in 1949, life became difficult for many Jews in many Arab countries. They were reluctant to leave, in general, Iraqi Jews that lived there for thousands of years. Moroccan Jews, Tunisian Jews, Algerian Jews, Egyptian Jews, you can go down the list. Jews lived all over the Middle East, and many of them lived comfortably and had businesses. Uh, but when many of those Arab societies saw that there was a state of Israel, and the governments in general, the Arab governments, hated Israel, had just made war on Israel, and Israel stubbornly hung on, well, then the pressure turned on the Jews. You have a combination, by the way, as I see it. When it comes to the Jews of Arab countries, there was a lot of push from the governments of the Arab countries and some of their neighbors, not all, to get out of here. And there was a pull by Israel saying, you're welcome here and we need you here and we want to build up our numbers. 
So in Arab countries, that had to be done in secret too. A lot of forged documents, a lot of secret agents. We speak a lot about them too. We spoke to some of these old men who had reached retirement age and became talkative about what they had done, including in the field of immigration. So really, secret missions. No other country's done that. Many of the most clever Israeli spies or secret agents were in Iraq. That's a big example and in Egypt, and in Morocco, Morocco is very big too, specifically to get the Jews out. I, I could almost say for nothing else, to get the Jews out. But think about that again. Just, just to hold that as a unique mission of Israeli intelligence, that's how you build up your country. Did the CIA ever get tasked with building up the United States? I don't just mean with immigration, building up the United States. Now, you could say, well, yes, in a way, little by little, <clears throat> every country needs great intelligence. We need the secrets. We need to stop our enemy from spying in our country and weakening us. So little by little, intelligence agencies do strengthen their countries. I think Israel's an extreme example. Again, in hyperspeed, having to do this quickly, having that sense, and also that sense of no choice, no strategic depth. If we don't get a lot of people moving to Israel and build up our population, well, we might die. We'll be outnumbered, literally. Unique missions of Israeli intelligence. Now, it is quite typical for an intelligence community, and that's what they became, the agencies I just said, four agencies, broadly speaking, became a community. Uh, and I would, we found that they were quite loyal to the prime minister. There wasn't a problem of rebellion. There wasn't really much friction among them. Uh, their, their tasks did overlap, however. The Shin Bet Agency for Domestic Security, because it specialized in catching foreign spies, especially communist spies from Russia, found that it wanted to have Shin Bet officers placed in the Israeli embassies in Europe, including in Eastern Europe. Israel did have diplomatic relations with the communist countries until 1967. At the time of the Six-Day War, the Soviet Union went totally against Israel and cut diplomatic relations, and there were no more embassies. But until 1967, Israel had embassies in all those countries. Isn't that strange? We know you're spying on us. This happened with the U.S. and the Soviet Union and the U.S. and China now. We know you're spying on us, but uh, we have diplomatic relations. And some of the people that we're putting in our embassy in Sofia, Bulgaria, and in Bucharest, Romania, and in Moscow in the USSR. Some of our people, well, you know, I know that you know that some of them are spies. Uh, fine, that's, you know, that's, that's the game that the US and Soviet Union played for many years. US and Russia, US and China still do, as I say. Uh, Israel was right up there, right away. Right away, just again feeling in hyperspeed that it had to do these things and be one of the big guys on the planet. And so, by the way, the Soviet Union was deeply suspicious of all the Israeli embassies in the Soviet bloc. The Soviet Union regarded Israel as a major player. I mean, again, this country which, for most of the time that I was growing up, Israel was two and a half, three million people. It's six million now, largely due to the success of the covert immigration programs, which included eventually helping Jews come from the Soviet Union, especially once the Soviet Union collapsed many, many Jews in Russia and the other former Soviet republics wanted to move. A lot of it still had to be done in secret, secret negotiations, payoffs to some of the communist leaders. 
we established in the book that Nicolae Ceausescu, the longtime leader of Romania, was getting suitcases full of cash delivered by the Mossad La Aliyah the Mossad Immigration Agency, uh, money. Bribery. The Israelis just thought that's the way the world is. A lot of bribes were paid. And you may find it interesting that at times, with again kind of a wink, bodies of the state of Israel, agencies of the state of Israel, would ask wealthy Jews around the world to help immigration projects. They didn't say exactly how it would be done, etc., but you might approach a foundation, an organization in the U.S., or some wealthy Jew in the U.S., France, Britain, and uh, some Israeli would say, we don't want to talk about this too much, but we're trying to get all the Jews out of Yemen. Don't ask for details. But we actually need $4 million to do it. And the contribution would come. This was fundraising for the purpose of what, again, often around the world, the newspaper would describe this as a slush fund, right? Where, where's, the, where's the accounting work for it? Is there a congressional agency, or in this case, a Knesset parliamentary agency, demanding that the intelligence community account for every dollar and where it went? Well, remarkably, no, especially not in the early years, yet we found very few examples of corruption. They were rooted out. Prime Minister Ben-Gurion and his early intelligence chiefs made it clear they would not tolerate corruption. That's where they were being kind of KGB style, being Soviet style. Very tough on that. And so it actually was a pretty clean machine but done in secret with money from wherever, going to wherever to do whatever. And the Israelis were very adept at it, building up the country in that very unique way. So intelligence agencies typically prepare for war. Even after that 48-49 War of Independence, the Israelis felt there'd probably be another round, and they were right. But the next one, to be frank, in 1956, you could say the Israelis started it. Well, here's what happened. Gamal Abdel Nasser had taken over in Egypt, and he was an expansionist guy who said in all his speeches he wanted to throw the Israelis into the sea, and he was supporting all sorts of terrorist groups, many of them operating out of the Gaza Strip. In the 1950s, Israel found that unacceptable, tried to undermine Nasser. A lot of things were going on at once at hyperspeed. Israeli intelligence had agents in Egypt for the purpose of the secret immigration to get Egyptian Jews out of Egypt. At the same time, there was the feeling that there would be another round of war. So some Israeli spies were there to keep an eye on the Egyptian Navy, the Egyptian Air Force, the Egyptian Army, of course, uh, and also the beginnings of an Egyptian missile program. The Israelis were extremely alarmed by this. You, you, do you know who the, who the scientists were who were helping Egypt? The Germans. Some of the same Germans who had worked on their uh, V-2 rockets. You know that the U.S. got some of those experts to come help uh, the American space program and rocket development. Well, Egypt did too. Egypt was offering a lot of money. Germans had moved to Cairo. The Israelis were very concerned, and so they got into kind of a new business, intimidation. The Mossad and... Amman, the military intelligence, in targeting Egypt, in realizing that Egypt was the strongest of the Arab countries, and then seeing these former Nazis there, and that's the way Israel saw it, thought we've got to dissuade the Germans from being involved with Nasser and his regime over there. The intimidation took place in Germany and in Egypt. Letter bombs were sent. Threats were mailed and telephoned. And the German families felt it. And they felt it in Germany. Some of the German scientists pulled out. Some didn't. The Israelis, frankly, were starting kind of a new thing, which they have continued to do even in Iran 
today to intimidate scientists. Don't take part in that program. Don't help Iran's nuclear program. Certainly the message from Israel to foreign scientists, don't help the Arabs develop special weapons, and to foreign scientists who might be tempted to be involved in Iran, don't help them. And then the Mossad, as we report in this book, took it to the next stage recently, in the past few years, assassinating Iranian nuclear scientists in Tehran. And the detail of it, well, obviously, uh, my co-author Yossi Melman and I were not told every detail, but from all the evidence and all the information and the historical background of what Israeli intelligence has done in the past, it's not mercenaries, it's not Iranian dissidents, it's not uh, minority groups on the fringes of Iran paid by Israel to do it. Uh, these missions are perfectly executed, often men on motorcycles opening fire or sticking a an exquisitely shaped so-called sticky bomb, magnetic, magnetically attached to the outside of a car and exploding in such a way that it only gets the people inside the car. Not much collateral damage, as they say in the business. Uh, the Mossad developed these capabilities over the years in that special line of work that I call intimidation. And they developed that in the 50s. So everything about Egypt was a learning ground for much of what Israel was doing why the intelligence community had been set up, immigration, but also offensive action, intimidation, and the espionage work to prepare for the next war. The next war, ironically, I said Israel started it. Israel worked with Britain and France to invade Egypt. The British and the French were really, really fed up to here, you know, fed up with, with President Nasser, who had taken over the Suez Canal, which was an Anglo-French project, and so the British and the French wanted it back. So in broad terms, to put it simply, in 1956, the British and the French met with the Israelis in secret. We have absolutely an eyewitness account of the planning meeting here, including Shimon Peres, who is now the president of Israel in his late 80s. In 1956, 56 years ago, being at that meeting and raising a glass and a toast to the success of their mission, which was invading the Sinai and the Suez Canal, and the French and the British grabbed the Suez Canal, and they hoped that that would topple Nasser by humiliating him, and the Israelis managed to win the Sinai, showing their military prowess. They could capture the entire Sinai Peninsula in 1956. One thing very important in the politics behind intelligence, the United States was really angry about it. The U.S. was not let in on this at all. The British and the French, the U.S. wartime partners in World War II, allies of the U.S., NATO members, didn't tell the U.S. Can you believe it? The British and the French teamed up with Israel to invade Egypt. President Eisenhower was really angry and forced them all to pull out. By early 1957, the Israelis and the British and the French were pulling out of Suez and Sinai. Uh, but the Americans were also impressed. They hadn't realized what the Israelis can do. Israel was only eight years old and had accomplished this. If you don't work with Israel, you don't keep an eye on Israel, you don't cooperate with Israel and build up a close tie from the American point of view, you're missing something. There's a new power in the Middle East. It's Israel and especially its intelligence community. So the U.S. didn't miss that opportunity. And over the years to come, especially after the 67 war, the U.S. and Israel started working very closely together.
So those are some early themes we develop, and I hope I've mentioned some things that you, you know, otherwise might not pick up. It might not be the same as the big newspaper headlines that are derived from our book, etc. A lot of that about Iran, and I'll be happy to take questions about that. But I wanted to set up the themes of how the community was established, because that sets up your understanding of the uniqueness of Israel's intelligence community and how it thought that its mission was life or death and that it had to be innovative and it had to be up there with the big guys but also do things that no one else would. And now a few words about how to write a book about intelligence. You know, in many, in many aspects of life, it's not what you know, it's who you know. It might be a combination in this particular case. Who you know is really important. So you'd have to build up your relationships for years. Journalists are not spies. Yossi Melman may write about intelligence, but he's not in the intelligence community. Yet Israel is a free country, and so he's been writing about these things. And so over the years, get to know people. You don't quote them in the newspaper. You don't attribute your story to anyone in particular. So over the years, they trust you. And if you approach some of your sources, people you've been interviewing for years, and you say, you know, now we're writing a history. We're trying to give it some historical context. I'm not going to name, name you as a source. But tell me what really went on. And especially as men and women get older and they want to set the record straight, that's a wonderful approach. Talk to people in an understanding, non-judgmental way if you're a journalist or a historian. Listen. Listen more than you talk, of course. I've broken that rule in the last 40 minutes, I know. I'm about to reverse it. Uh, listen, and you'll find that people want to talk about what they did. Yes, even in the secret world of intelligence. Here we are in a building that has devoted itself to revealing what it can about this remarkable part of world events. People have revealed a little, but I'm going to assure you of one thing. Even as I've written two books about Israeli intelligence now and Spies Against Armageddon tries to put these events in, in context as best as it can, I know I don't know everything, and I know that my sources didn't tell me everything. I'm positive of that. I'd love to take your questions. Thank you very much. Let's all thank Dan. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. wonderful talk. You've not said a word about Israel's effort, success in acquiring nuclear weapons, which it does not officially have. Sure. Uh, I'm happy to. I'm glad you asked. point of the Q&A is to find out what interests you. I won't be too long, but I will tell you this. This book, I'm not meaning to push the book. It means that my work recently has focused a lot on that as, again, some of those older gentlemen and ladies who worked on that project have been willing to talk about how they did it setting up yet another agency, 
Some people would say, but some of you in this room think you've heard of Lakam. We'll do the Hebrew again. Lishka Lekishrei Modi'in, the Bureau for Scientific uh, Contacts, Liaison. Bureau for Scientific Liaison. That sounds innocent enough. They're just having scientific relations. They have a science attache in the embassy in Washington and the embassy in Paris, etc. Well, it turns out that LACOM, that agency, was also put in charge of gathering everything necessary for the secret nuclear program. Ben-Gurion, the prime minister, decided early on that Israel, despite being tiny, would have to have the ultimate weapon. That if the superpowers had, had atomic bombs, the Jews have great scientists, we can do it too. And with the French assistance, they did. As part of the Suez-Sinai, those secret meetings in early 56, setting up the Suez-Sinai War, 1956, Paris, Shimon Paris, made a deal with the French. The French would, del not deliver, construct. The French set, sent construction crews to the Negev desert of Israel, and the French built the Demona reactor in the full knowledge that it could make weapons-grade materials. Now, there nothing is announced, nothing at all, not a word, until the United States tells the Israelis with concern that our U-2 spy planes are seeing something built and it sure looks like a nuclear reactor. Ben-Gurion first tried to say it's a textile factory. <laughs> and he never admitted, not really even to the United States, what it is. And they decided to have kind of a tacit understanding. So our story is a lot of smuggling, the secret agency getting what it needs to, making shiploads of uranium disappear, a lot of individuals telling their story, even though Israel has not officially acknowledged any of it. And we have two phrases in our book, nuclear ambiguity and nuclear monopoly. The intelligence community was, in put, was put in charge of this. Nuclear ambiguity, you can believe that we have a nuclear bomb, but we're keeping it ambiguous. We don't want to let you know. It's part, of, well, it's part of our mystique. You want to fear us? Fear us, please. We're not going to announce that we are a nuclear power and we're not signing the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's a certain stubbornness. It's their attitude. Israel feels that it's a special case. Back against the wall has to do this. Very unusual. Nuclear ambiguity. And then the controversial current policy, nuclear monopoly. Israel intends not to let any of its neighbors, certainly not the hostile countries, have nuclear weapons. Therefore, Israel's Air Force bombed the reactor in Baghdad in 1981. They intended never to announce it, but Menachem Begin, the prime minister, was so pleased by the outcome that he did announce it. So they destroyed a reactor in Baghdad, Iraq, in 81, and in 2007, without any announcement at all, and they have never acknowledged it, but we have a very much, almost a tick-tock, as they say, of how the decision was made and then the destruction of Syria's nuclear reactor. That was in September of 2007, five years ago. That's nuclear monopoly in action. Iran is an example, of course. Israel is determined not to let Iran develop a nuclear bomb. Got lots of hands here. Why don't we take the gentleman in yellow on the aisle? Uh, I have two questions. I'll make them very concise if I can. Does, when your book deals with the events that correspond to the period that your first book deals with, is the dealing in this book a new analysis based on new information? I, I, I love the way you put that. Yes. <laughs> and so because our first book stopped in 1990 and dared to say every spy of Prince, the complete history of Israel's intelligence committee. Ah, you laugh. 22 years go by. There was a consideration of, you know, every spy of Prince 2, you know, part 2, pick it up in 1990. But when we were talking to people, thinking we're 
learning about the period since 1990, they drew so many new connections to things that had occurred earlier. We realized, no, to get the context right, to help you understand why Israel behaves as it does, we felt we had to go all the way back. We have a lot of new witnesses, a lot of new people quoted, and therefore, yeah, sometimes our account changed from the complete history to the completer history. How about that? Israeli efforts to uh, interdict the Iranian nuclear program. Up until recently, and perhaps it was your book and publication that triggered that, there was never an admission by the Israeli government that they were involved in these uh, attacks in Iran. Personally, I felt that was the better way to deal with it. So what is your view of having published this or having relied on other publications of coming right out and saying it is the Israelis that are doing this? Is this damaging to Israel? Is it not damaging to Israel? Is it good for Israel? Hard to say, and I've you know, been uh, reporting on stories of this nature for, for many years, really many years. And um, you get some differing views in Israel, I suppose. Yossi Melman organizes the Hebrew version of our books, and we're coming out next week with this book, and everything will be in it. And you won't be surprised that Israeli newspapers yesterday you know, ran the excerpt that the AP had plucked out of our book this past weekend. It's Israeli operatives who are doing it in Tehran. Um, I didn't feel any so-called blowback that Israelis were sorry about about the revelation of that. First, it's revealed by journalists and historians. So it's not officially confirmed. What Israeli officials like to do when they want to intimidate their enemies is just kind of wink, or in the case of a large explosion at a missile base in Tehran, a senior Israeli cabinet minister in public, to a lot of reporters, said, maybe it was the hand of God, it's good news. So they try a little sarcasm, a little wink, wink showing their pleasure that it occurred. I think that the part of my story that I told today involving intimidation still holds. Israel likes to be ambiguous about many of these things, not announce them, but I don't think on the whole they mind when it leaks out. They feel it intimidates their enemy. I'm not here to tell you whether they're right or wrong, but in their attitude, I think they do. One other thing I'll add, just for background, just yesterday I was in New York and I had some meetings and some you know, publicity events that had to do with this book as well, and there were some American Jews who say that they love Israel a lot, and they say, you know, Israel should be more concerned about its PR. They should make clear why they do things, they don't do things, they should explain. They'd be better understood, etc. I can only bring you into the Israeli culture and mindset, which is, we don't have to explain it. You know, we're too busy. We're trying to defend ourselves. We don't care what you think. Well, this particular American Jewish lady who totally loves Israel said, they ought to care. They ought to care, you know. It'll help them a lot if they had better PR and would explain themselves. I'm writing about the intelligence community here. It is not a PR agency, that's for sure. <laughs> they feel they're just busy defending the country. Uh, why don't we take the gentleman in the front row on the outside here. Who is responsible for the Pollard case, and uh, would you in a nutshell explain why it happened? Okay, Jonathan Pollard was an American 
captured here in Washington, D.C., spying for Israel. He was a civilian working in U.S. Navy intelligence. That happened, his arrest, in November of 1985. He was sentenced to life in prison. So he's still in prison, an American Jew who spied for Israel. Using him as an agent in the United States broke the rules. Israeli intelligence shouldn't have done it. They regret doing it, by the way, if you know anything about intel. They regret anything when they're caught. I'll get to it. They regret anything when they're caught. Right? If you're caught, I regret it, it was a mistake, really sorry. Because we found that the agency that employed him, not the Mossad, and we really believe it was not the Mossad, because this operation broke the Mossad's rules, was that scientific agency I told you about, LACAM, that was in charge of gathering in scientific data from everywhere and anywhere. But at the time, LACAM, part of the defense ministry in Tel Aviv, was directed by a man who was one of the star characters in Spies Against Armageddon. He's a member of Israel's Knesset parliament right now. His name is Rafi Eitan. He literally was one of the kidnappers of the Nazi war criminal Eichmann in Argentina in 1960. Even before that, we identify him in our book as Mr. Kidnap. His specialty was finding Nazi war criminals, Arab enemies, and even Israelis who went astray, someone who joined Israeli intelligence and started being corrupt and pocketing money. Rafi Eitan would be in charge of getting him in Europe, putting him in a wooden box, and flying him back to Israel. Mr. Kidnap. Well, Mr. Kidnap in the 1980s was put in charge of an agency, that special agency, LACOM, for scientific liaison that was getting nuclear info and other scientific info. And when there was a walk-in, come see everything in this museum. You'll get all these phrases like walk-in. <laughs> when there was a walk-in, a volunteer, they didn't look for a Jonathan Pollard for an American Jew to spy for Israel, but Pollard wanted to be a spy, and so he met some Israelis and said, you know, I got a lot of secrets. And you know what's really angering me? I know the United States is not helping Israel as much as it could. I could give you a lot of information. And it happened to be to a defense ministry guy. So it went through the defense ministry ladder, and it was Rafi Eitan, Mr. Kidnap, who had moved on to lots of other secret stuff, who, uh, said that, who decided that would be fantastic. We're going to use this guy. Now, in our opinion, Yossi Melman and I believe that in the meetings then, in which in amazing intelligence came in, satellite photos, maps, assessments of Arab armies, all the anti-aircraft systems of North Africa were chartered out. That helped the Israelis attack the PLO headquarters in Tunis, Tunisia, definitely using information that Pollard had fed. We feel that at those meetings in Israel, they had to know there's a spy in Washington. That stuff was clearly from America. Someone should have raised their hand and say, who's your spy? Don't do this. If it's an American Jew operating in, in the United States, an American Jew in his home country, we don't do that. We don't use French Jews in France. We do not use Swiss Jews in Switzerland. Really, that's part of the rule, not to get the local Jewish community in terrible trouble. They broke the rule at the end of our Pollard chapter. We say it made life hellish for Jews working in the United States, military, defense, and intelligence, for contractors and others, for people who were involved with the US military in any way at all. If you were an American Jew, you were suspect. Nasty jokes would be made about Pollard. And so we say at the end of that chapter that the Israelis did a real disservice to the Jews of America by employing Pollard, not the Mossad, but we think someone should have raised their hand and stopped it. Uh, the Gentlemen uh, on the aisle at, uh, at the back here, and then we'll take the lady directly in front of him as the next question. 
we've got time for about three more. Thank you for your, thank you for your presentation. Uh, I was wondering how confident is the Israeli intelligence community about undermining and stopping Iran's uh, nuclear program, and what can be further uh, operations besides uh, covert assassinations? Okay, I don't want to go into it in too much depth right now. Uh, First, what else can Israel do? It's not for me to say, but I'm going to help you read between the lines of a very public stance taken by a very private person. Mayor Dagan was head of the Mossad for eight years. He retired at the end of 2010. And after that, he went public. And he was on CBS 60 Minutes a few months ago. And he said that attacking Iran using your military, your air force, your missiles, that would be a big mistake. Don't do it. His concern, quite openly and obviously, was that Iranian retaliation, including Iran's friends like Hezbollah in southern Lebanon with many, many thousands of rockets, and also Hamas in Gaza would probably fire rockets as paid by Iran, that the retaliation would be terrible. It would make life in Israel terrible, not worth doing, don't do it, it's a mistake. What he didn't say is what he advocates instead. A lot more, he feels, a lot more of what he was doing in his years more sabotage, more intimidation, more assassinations, more Stuxnet, more efforts to create computer viruses and worms that will slow down the Iranian systems and confound the Iranian nuclear program and maybe even Iran's economy and oil systems, etc. Give Iran a lot of trouble on a covert basis. I believe, reading between the lines, that that is what Mayor Dagan is suggesting. And so there's a large faction within the Israeli intelligence community and military that also says that's the best plan for now. The U.S. and other countries are imposing sanctions. That's hurting Iran. It's clear that the world cares about this. Some people aren't sure how much Russia and China care, but that's, you know, that's big power politics. Israel has succeeded, I think, in making this a top issue for the world. And a lot of that work by Israel was done by the intelligence community to give information to the U.S., to work together more than ever, to work on Stuxnet, the computer worm, together. We agree with findings you may have seen in the press that the U.S. and Israel created Stuxnet and other computer viruses together. And so they're, they're, they're operating together more than ever because of the Iran problem. Now, the Israelis are confident they understand what's going on in Iran. So I'll, I'll answer one particular issue that I, I, I can imagine would, would interest you, sir. Israeli intelligence people say, we'll know if the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, decides to break out and build a bomb. Because it's one thing to enrich uranium to a highly enriched state and have it ready to be a bomb and to design a warhead and to have the special metal parts. It's another thing to break out and intensively work fast to create a bomb. And Israeli intelligence people, for some reason, say, we'll know. And then it's, that's it. That's a red line. That's unacceptable. In fact, Israel wants to stop the program earlier and at least delay it for years and years. The United States, even officials here in, in D.C., say the intelligence is pretty good. We think we'll know. I, I'm almost surprised at the confidence, but they seem to be signaling that they think they have Iran well monitored. That's a good word, monitored. Right in front of the last question. In 1973, my father made Aliyah to Israel. Ah. In the, uh, right after World War II, he was part of the military government. He, he was a longtime Zionist. Someone from the CIA comes to my dad and says, will you, will you take intelligence for us while you move to Israel? And my dad tells me the story. 
not on your life because I'm a Zionist and I'm not going to, you know, this is going to be my new country. So that has to go with one last ask. Another divided loyalty story. Well, yeah. well that's, that's my father's story, but it has to do with how much does the CIA, I mean, we've heard the Pollard story, but how much do this, I mean, I suspect if they asked my dad to do it, do you think, and the, well, we have a had the right intelligence We have on a my chapter father. with colorful detail of an Israeli named Yossi Amit, who then served quite a lot of time in an Israeli prison, who was approached by CIA people, brought to Germany, debriefed medical tests, psychological tests, weird questions that he tells. I think we can say that he told us. After, Yossi Amit, after he was in prison, became very talkative and told the entire story about how the CIA approached him and flew him to Germany and flew him back, and he thought he was going to work for the CIA, and maybe they thought he was unstable or whatever because, in fact, Mr. Amit made a few mistakes and was arrested. But, yes, it's a very colorful and real-life example uh, not too long ago. In, this, in his case, the mid-'80s, around Pollard time, that the CIA was trying to recruit Israeli agents to understand Israel better. Can we wait for the microphone? You said they get Russians going to Israel. No, I like your story, Aviva. Uh, right, that's I a forgot nice, nice to tell addition. You. <laughs> <laughs> we got time for one more question. The gentleman in the gray suit right here, and then I'm afraid we have to wrap up. Yes, thank you. Uh, is it on? Yep. I happened to be in Herzliya last year in a very interesting time when Egypt started disintegrating and there's a lot of consternation not only about what's happening in North Africa and they predicted very well uh, you know with the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power but also with Turkey which was a longtime ally of Israel and relations you know disrupted by the Mavi Marmaris incident. Uh, this is sort of a future oriented question. Uh, Turkey has greatly expanded its diplomatic and intelligence reach, especially through the TICA, the Turkish Development Agency, and new consulates mm -hmm. across Africa, the Balkans, and uh, the Caucasus. Is this something, considering the uh, slant of the Erdogan government, is this something that Israel is going to have to take into account planning its own intelligence activities to monitor in the future mm -hmm. as Turkey pushes for more leverage? Sure. Yeah, very much so. So you could call Turkey a regional rival. The Israeli strategy has not changed that much from what we describe in the 50s called the peripheral strategy. Try, if possible, to work with countries that are not Arab Muslim countries around the edge of the Muslim world. Therefore, they had good relations with the Shah of Iran, kept pretty much secret because he's not, he wasn't an Arab. Iran's not Arab. Israel would love to be friendly again with Iran, if possible, maybe after the Islamic Republic changes. It's an Israeli hope. In the case of Turkey, Israel had worked very hard through its intelligence agencies and then even with the militaries to work with Turkey, well aware that Turkey is a NATO country. It would be a good way of cooperating with the U.S. and the rest of NATO. And then, as you say, Prime Minister Erdogan seems to have changed and wants Turkey to be a very important Muslim power. Among other things, Erdogan doesn't like Israel, has turned against Israel. Uh, one wonders if everything you see on the surface is the full story. And I can tell you that Israeli intelligence intends to be part of restoring an excellent working relationship with Turkey by finding common foes. And the unrest in Syria, which borders on Turkey and borders on Israel, is common cause. Turkey and Israel, for different reasons and different ways, are worried about what might be next in Syria and elsewhere in the region. But Syria is a common cause issue which I think will lubricate the return of Israeli-Turkish relations, despite the bitterness that you see on the surface. 
Well, we could clearly continue for a very long time, which I think is a sign of a fabulous and successful talk. So again, let's all thank Dan Raviv. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.